Good morning, Burlington Baptist Church. Thank you, buddy. That was really good. I believe he sung a time or two, don't you? If you are a visitor, a guest, first time, we are so honored to have you with us today. My name is Kent, and I'm the senior pastor. We're glad that you chose to come and worship with us. You could have chosen a lot of places, and you're here today, and we're so honored to have you. We're going to continue today our series on the book of Revelation. There's no S on that word, is there? I'll tell you, if you don't remember anything else about the series, you'll remember there's no S on the end. I've said that every week. This is our third week. And uh, so as we start this, though, I want to just kind of recap just a little bit and look back at what we talked about. This is an incredible book, and I believe that so many people miss the beauty because they are afraid to read it or they're scared, you know, they don't understand it. But I think if we spend a little time and, and look into the entire Bible first, it'll make more sense to us. And so there are seven churches in the front part of this book. And these seven churches, there are some characteristics of these churches that I think we can learn from the principles from those churches and things that apply to our lives. The first week we studied, the name of the church was Ephesus. It's up there on the map. And Ephesus is a city that's located by water. It was a commerce kind of a city. Uh, there were boats coming in and there were roads coming into this place. And, and they built a church there. The city was called Ephesus, but Paul started a church at Ephesus. And it's in the book of Acts if you want to read about it. And so he starts this church, and they take off like a lot of churches do, all excited on fire. And, uh, and all of a sudden, after a few years, something starts happening. They lose their first love. You know what happened? They got religious, and they lost sight of Jesus. Can I get a witness? And so we have to be careful of that. There's a principle of that one. And if you get a chance, read that. It's pretty good. Second church was Smyrna. We talked about it last week. Uh, I always think when I say Smyrna, Smyrna, Tennessee, because I used to go down there and hang out. But Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which means frankincense. And myrrh, you mean it's a fragrance. That's what you reference it to. And so this city was known. You notice it's up the road about 25 to 50 miles up there. And it was up the road there. And they uh, were a commerce city as well. But they were a little different. They were kind of like a retail outlet. And, and as they've done excavations, they found in this place malls. And they had fragrances that they sold there. And so in that place, a church was established. This church wasn't quite as wealthy as the church at Ephesus. And their problem was that they were being persecuted because they wouldn't worship the pagan gods. Today, we're going to go 25 miles on up the road, and we're going to look at a church called Pergamum. You see that word, Pergamum? Um, we uh, got this thing going, and we started looking at it. And, and I, I thought, you know, when I grew up in church, I thought that church was called Pergamus. And so we did a little research on it, and if you have a King James Bible, it is called Pergamus. If you have another version, it'll say Pergamum, and the reason is because they're using different tenses, uh, like gender tenses on it, and the newer versions have a reference to that. But it doesn't make any difference. It's the same city, and we kind of get the gist of it. The story is that there was a man named John, one of the disciples, and he was on this island called Patmos. He was cast out to this island called Patmos, and the Lord spoke to him. In Revelation 1, it says, This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. And this is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so John received this message from Jesus about what we're talking about today. It was the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this city today of Pergamon, but before we go any further, I want us to stop and pray. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I thank you that your book is relevant. It doesn't matter whether we're, uh, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, a thousand. Your word is relevant to us and it speaks to us, Father. 
I thank you that your word has already spoken to you to us today. And I pray, God, that it goes out. And I pray, Holy Spirit, teaches us. I pray, God, that you give me the gift of preaching. Not for my glory, Lord, but that Holy Spirit would speak in this place. In a crowd this size, there are those that are hurting. In a crowd this size, there are those who want to draw closer, Lord. And so I pray today would be that day. Help us each to learn what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody together says, amen. So we're talking about this city called Pergamum, all right? And uh, I'm trying not to make this like an academic classroom, but it's kind of hard to do without getting the backdrop because if you just read this stuff and you read this cryptic language and you don't understand the undercurrent of it, it can cause confusion. And I think that's part of the problem, that people get confused with the book of Revelation. So this, this book that we're looking at today, is, or this, this city that we're looking at today, it's a little different. This city was built on a hill, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's on a tall cliff. And this, this city was different in that it was isolated up there. It was the capital city during this time in, in other civilizations. And the Roman Empire took over. It had experience in politics, so they kept it as a capital. They said that if we were to put names on the current, or, uh, current names on the, these cities, Ephesus would have been the New York and Pergamum would have been Washington. Kind of give you the idea, you know, about how they were. So this, this city is uh, seated on a hill here, and they were pagan worshipers. They worshipped Zeus. Anybody ever heard Zeus, the name Zeus? Yeah, it was a Greek god. They worshipped him. They worshipped Athena. Uh, this city was founded by a man who was a, a, a leader uh, in Alexander. He, he, after Alexander the Great was taken over, they divided this town up, and he got it. And he set it up on this hill. He had $11 billion, and it was on this hill that he established this city to hide the money. How cool is that? Now watch this. Here's what the scripture says to this church that we're talking about today. Can you pull the scripture up for me? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. How many of you want to move there? Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Catch this. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly. Now watch this. And fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, watch this. I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So we have this church that's established in a city on a hill that is called the throne of Satan. How special. Think there was any opposition in this church? You ever have any opposition in your life? And so when we look at this, this church, some of the principles that I think that jump out immediately is that, number one, there will be obstacles in our lives, and we can look to this church to see how they overcome. Let's look a little bit deeper into this. The mindset of this culture was do your own thing. You ever heard that before? 
If it feels good, do it. It's all cool. It's not a big deal. You know, hey, you know, just roll with it, man. Familiar sound? You see the principles here? Already right out of the gate, the Roman government was in charge of this area, and the structure was one of a local government, you know. It was like they had the overseers. And, and so the, the governor of this area was the one that had the sword. He, he dictated life or death, they thought. How interesting is that? And so when, when Jesus gives this word, he's basically saying, there's only one that's got a sword. And his name is Jesus Christ, and he is the word of life. Look at this. It says in verse 12, this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. The Roman government structure consisted of the fact that he was given the sword, the governor was. But Jesus is making the point, don't you give up. Don't you give up because the truth is in Christ. I want to tell you something. It's been a heavy week around here. We have been under construction so long, I'm ready to get this done. And I come in this morning, and I was, I was thinking, wow, you know, okay, so we were over here yesterday, and it was all happening. We got Brad with us today from the sound company. He's running and doing a good job. Thanks, Brad. And we've got all these people that's volunteered, uh, worked many hours. We're tired. Some of you are. And I come in this morning, and I'm thinking, Lord, give me strength. A guy walks up to me and says, I need to talk to you. I got two kids that want to accept Jesus right now. Thank you, Lord. It's all about him. I'm grateful for our church. I'm grateful for the paint on the walls. I'm grateful for the carpet. But this stuff will rot and rust and go away. But what happened downstairs this morning is eternal. And that's what the church is about, you all. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. This church, Pergamum, in the middle of chaos, in the middle of evil, a place that was called the throne of Satan. Can you imagine? It had to be pretty bad. They said there was a street on this, in this town that had nothing but pagan temples on it. Let's look at this a little further. It goes on. It's kind of interesting because he talks about Satan's throne, you know, and he says, I know that you're the residence there. Now, when you read that, you think, well, were they going to that temple? No. What that word meant was that's where they lived. They lived in a place that wasn't like a, a utopia, you know, where they just kind of all sat around and sang kumbaya. That wasn't happening there. They were in a city that was filled with sin. And paganism, and he says, I know where you are. He's already told him that he's the truth, but you hold on. You hold on. He even goes on to talk about, he says, a faithful witness, and his name was Antipas. Antipas was a witness in the church. He was one of the people that attended this church that loved Jesus and wouldn't bow down to the pagan gods. And he took it, he, he was martyred for it. And he says he was a faithful witness. You know, that would kind of take you back, wouldn't it? I mean, it kind of makes you want to think, well, what should I do here, you know? He was a part of their fellowship, but he didn't compromise his faith in this city. It's thought that because there were so many pagan temples in the city that he might have been re referencing the worship of pagan gods, but the temples were quite popular here. There was another guy named Serapis. Listen, let me tell you how evil, this how evil some of this worship was. This guy named Serapis had his temple. You had Zeus over here, and then you had Athena over here, and you had, you could just, it was a buffet. This Serapis temple you would go in there and they had priests and priestesses as they called them in the place and you would walk in the statue of them, one of them that i saw yeah there's one of them uh, one of them had snakes around his feet in this temple they had snakes and if you were sick you would go in there and lay down and these snakes would crawl around if they touch you you would receive healing and i'm telling you what i thought a flu shot was bad Woo! i mean really that's what we're looking at here that's how bad this was can you, can you get this in your mind? The throne of Satan, that's how dark it was. 
this statue, there were these statues everywhere. They're, they dig these remains up. They see all this stuff. And it's interesting to see that right in the middle of this is a church that's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's hope, you all. There's hope, and his name is Jesus. Go on down, and we see there's, a, there's another place, and, and it was a, this, this uh, a temple for Zeus. Now, this is interesting because there's a phrase that's used about the, uh, the altar of Satan. This place was on a bluff that was, it was, it was, ra- it was way up high. It was, it, was 50, uh, it was 100 feet above the Aegean Sea level. So this place, when you would look up at it, was like built up high. And on the edge of this cliff, they had this, this, this statue built to Zeus. And so what happened was they would offer incense on this thing. Because when you're standing down here looking up, you would see this, and they offered incense all day long. So when you're looking up, there's smoke coming out of this thing. Constantly, they're looking at that. Can you imagine? It was 90 feet square, 20 feet tall on the edge of this ledge of a cliff, and smoke boiled from it all day long. You couldn't live in Pergamum and not see this. There was another thing that was happening. Again, they were worshiping the Roman government and the leaders. It was most intense in this city. But then he goes on to say, and this is, what's, this is kind of interesting. I like this because he says in verse 14, You tolerate some of you whose teaching is like Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. Now, here's another point of, that I want to make because a lot of times, as I said before, how many of you have ever rented a, li- a book in the library, opened it up and read the last chapter first? Well, some of you might do that, but that's not, you know. No, nobody raised their hand, but that's not the way it goes. You know, we, we get a book, we read from front to back, but then we get the book of Revelation, we go to the back, we read it, it doesn't make any sense. When he's making references about Balaam and Balak, he's talking about a story in the Old Testament. And this is a hilarious story. There was the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. God freed them to go, right? He, they were his chosen people. So they're coming across. Here they come. And they're coming across, and there's this guy named Balak, and he's the king in Midian. is a little town there, a little country there in a little area. And he knows that his army can't take them on. So he goes and recruits this guy named Balaam, who's a sorcerer. And he hires him to put a curse on the children of Israel. Talk about smoke and mirrors, right? So he goes out there, and, he, and here they come, and he throws his hands up in the air, and he goes to prepare a curse, and out comes a praise. <laughs> and he can't, he looks, you know, read this, it's hilarious. He does it again. Goes to proclaim this, and it out comes a pr- And Balak, the guy that hired him, is like, that's not what I hired you to do. He's going up against God's people. That's a mistake. And he does it three times. And so finally, Balak goes to him and says, what's up with this? And he says, here, look, this ain't going to work, but here's what you do. Here's what you do. You go get some of the prettiest ladies that you have in your community. And when those folks camp and they settle, you send those women in and let them infiltrate the community. And that's exactly what they did. And you know what happened? They started compromising. Now, there's the word for the day compromising they started compromising and the next thing you know they've got pagan gods in their homes they began to worship and the church at pergamum was in the middle of it and so he's calling them back it's how quick it can happen in it we have to stay focused that's why it's important that we continue in the word and we stay in church and we stay in fellowship people come to me and go you know i i don't I, things aren't going well for me and i say well what what are you doing are you reading the word um are you coming to church? Are you in a, um, Listen, it's like eating at the table. If you don't go to the table and eat, guess what's going to happen? 
Yeah, I mean, we need this. I need you guys. I need the fellowship that you give me. And I hope that you need the fellowship that you get. You know, like I've said before, you walk in here sometimes and you feel like you've been like a hamster on a wheel all week. And you're beat up and you walk in and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and says, man, will you pray over me? Or let me pray over you. Let me give you a word of encouragement. Man, you guys feel like you got wings, right? We need each other. Now look at this. Here's the situation. They're in this environment and it's horrible. But they're living their faith and, and he's telling them to stay focused, you know. Some of them are falling off the wheels a little bit here. He's saying, come back. And here's what he says in verse 16. Watch this. This is, this is beautiful. He says, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword. Now, one of the things we don't like to talk about in church too much is repenting. I mean, I grew up where they'd pick this thing up and slam it down and, you know, you could feel the flames, man. Whew. Wasn't all that bad, actually, looking back. But the Bible teaches repenting. You know, we make mistakes. We're human beings. The Bible says, he that it says he's without sin, you know, we, we all sin. There's only one. But here's the good news. When we repent, God forgives us. And true repentance means to turn. It means to completely turn. He says, repent of your sin. Did you notice who he says he'll fight against? He will fight against them with what? With your sin. The thing that can slay the forces of evil are the words of Jesus. There's power in the word. I just led these young people to the Lord downstairs, and we were sitting there, and I took my Bible, and I turned around and said, you see them red letters right there? I like the red. Whenever you see those red letters in that book, that's the words of Jesus. You hold on to those. There's hope in those words. There's power in the words of Jesus. And we're victorious by his word. Jesus is the word. And he says to repent, and he will fight against those. The thing that can slay the forces of error are the words of Jesus, the words of truth. We must remember those words of truth. We must stay close. That's why it's so important that we stay in the word. You know, they tease me in the office because I, I get a budget line that I can spend money, and I spend most of it on books. Let's Joanne laugh. And the reason I do that is because when people come into my office and I start talking to them, I say, are you in the Word? Uh, and I say, here, here's a Bible. Take that with you. And when, if they ever, you know, look at what I've spent money on, it's all, it's all, golly, he must have a collection of Bibles, you know. But the Word, the Word is important. for. I can't overemphasize how important it is to stay in the Word. And he says the sword of his mouth is what he will fight with. And the word of God is what we need to stay in. And we need to pray for God to lead us. How many of you truly believe that if we pray to the Lord, he hears your prayers? You've raised your hand as a witness to that today. When something happens this next week, even today perhaps, and you're confronted with something, a possibility of a compromise, pray. Pray first. Stop. Pray. Now, that's hard on a guy like me to stop. But I'm getting better at it. And I want to encourage you to do that. Pray. Because God will show you. He'll lead us. It's important that we stay together. It's important that we recognize that we can repent and turn. And that's what he's telling these people to do. To repent. It's important to recognize that because of the gospel of grace and because he loves us, that we can be saved. And forgiven. Saved by grace, not by works lest any man should boast. Saved by the blood of Jesus. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus the Christ. 
in a city filled with paganism, things that we can't, I can't even tell you some of the stuff that when I'm too embarrassed to even talk about of what they did and what they were doing at the time. In that city, there was a light, and that light was Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, there's a light today in this world, and his name is Jesus. And our jobs, like the church at Pergamum, is to share that light. Not to be like the church in Ephesus and just come and go through the motions, as I said, but to share, to go, and to share. You see, we were formed as human beings to be a part of God's family. God's all about relationships. He's all about, you know, think about it. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Relationships, the family. God created you, every one of you. And I tell you this every couple weeks, I mention this. God created you to be in family, to be a part of the family. He formed us that way. The story of the Bible from the beginning is that God wants to be in a relationship with you. He loves you. He wants us to love back, to honor him. And to walk with him. Even the Godhead is relational. And, and, and when we accept Christ, the beautiful thing about that is we're new. We're changed people. We've repented and we've turned. Does that mean we're perfect? No. It means we're forgiven. We're forgiven. And as we go forward, God is lifting us up and encouraging us. And giving us strength. And we see when we accept Jesus, <laughs> uh, as I was talking to this this. Uh, person this morning was a young person and I said so I want to read this to you and I read the scripture and I said what does that mean to you and he said that means that Jesus loves me and I can when I'm baptized I'm new and different I accept him into my life and when I'm baptized I'm showing the world that I'm new and different I think is the way he said it isn't that beautiful nine years old understood it you see that's what it is we believe in believers baptism somebody said why I have talked to somebody why don't we baptize we don't baptize infants because we believe in our in our belief system that when you accept Jesus you are a believer and now you're baptized and you come up in the newness of life that's why we do it like this and and we submer- emerge you see what i'm saying and it shows the world it's a public testimony that we've accepted Christ in our lives we walk with him that's what Jesus told us to do the great commission was what Go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them. Don't just get them involved and let them go. Teach them. Share the word with each one of us. We were formed to be in a relationship. Notice the word sword. There's a reason why the whole Bible before uh, and the last is important from the front to last. They say two-edged sword. Did you catch that? That word's used a few times in the Bible, the two-edged sword. Some of the early church fathers believed that that two-edged sword was referenced in the Old Testament and the New. That's kind of an interesting thought. But this concept of a sword is not something that just started in the book of Revelation. This concept of a sword goes all the way back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 49, verse 2, watch this. Here's what he says. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. Reference to a sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting between joint and marrow, and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You ever read the Bible and be reading the Bible and kind of all of a sudden just kind of, hmm, I need to kind of work on that a little bit, maybe, you know, give that to the Lord, and maybe that's something in my life that I need to, to tweak. Because the word of God is true. It speaks to us. It speaks to us where we are. The very beginning of this book of Revelation as we read the book in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, He held the seven stars in his hand. It's referencing those church, 
and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all of its splendor. A sword. Whether we agree with it or not, it's a point that the word of God lays bare our sin. And it's the power of God, the proclamation of the gospel is, the power of God to salvation. John Stada, a theologian and a writer, says, The false ideologies of the world can be overthrown by the superior ideology of Christ. We have no other weapons but his sword. Verse 17 says, anyone who has ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit says and understand what he is saying to the churches. Somebody said to me, do you understand, you, you know, don't you have questions about that? You preach that with such authority that you, you, you understand. I said, you know what, here's the thing, there's, a, there's some things in here I don't, there's several things I don't understand. That's not what worries me. What concerns me is the things I do understand. Do you know what I'm saying by that? I mean, he's God. How could I expect to understand everything about him? He's infinite. I'm finite. But I get that he loves me. I get that he loves me and he loves you. And everyone who is victorious, I will give some manna that has been hidden away in heaven. Everyone who is victorious, I will give some manna that has been hidden away in heaven. What in the world is that talking about? Again, we have to go back, get the backdrop of it. The Lord, those same children of Israel that I was telling you about a while ago that got in the contest with Balaam and Balak, they came out of Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness, you know, and they're like some of us, and like me, make mistakes, so they wander for 40 years. And God provides food for them, and this was called manna, and it falls from heaven. And they said it was kind of a bread-like thing that would come from heaven, it was a substance that fell like the ground, fell to the ground like dew. Manna. Watch this. This is so good. And it just so happens that Moses takes some of this manna and he puts it in a jar like object. And he places it in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the thing that carried the holy stuff for the children of Israel. It was very sacred. And he takes this manna and he puts it in a jar, a pot, of a vessel, and he puts it in that Ark of the Covenant. And he says, we're going to have this so that our generations can be reminded of the great things that God has done. And someday that manna will be revealed. <laughs> Did you catch that? Do you catch what's going on here? It says the Lord will give manna to those, the hidden manna. The manna was revealed in Jesus. He's revealing it to them right there, right now. In a pagan city, David, the manna was revealed to them. Just as the old Israel was fed manna from the wilderness, so the new Israel is fed through the words of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. It's not a coincidence that Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. It's not a coincidence that he did the things that he did. 5,000 people were fed in John chapter 6, and he said, I am the bread of life. You see, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's coming again with manna like you and I could never imagine. Things that were, things which are, and things which will be. That's the beauty of this book. Something that's past, something that's happening, and it's something that we can look forward to. This next section of this chapter or this portion of the book is my favorite. I preached it to Diane all week. It's really, I, I couldn't help but, you know, I can't keep quiet. I guess you guys know that, man. I was like, I got to tell you, let me tell you about this. I go in the office and I say, Joanne, listen to this. I go over to Bonnie, you heard this? Let me tell you about this. 
This is so beautiful, you guys. Listen to this next section. Watch what it says. We're in chapter, you know, two, verse 17. This is the second part of that. We talked about the manna, but now watch this. And he says, and I will give each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives them. Now, that's pretty exciting when you think about it just in itself, right? But in the culture that this was written, it has a deeper meaning. There's some possibilities. Nobody knows exactly which one it's taken from. But the Romans in this area and in this city, you would walk and you would see these, these white rocks, and they were flat. And they were wonderfully perfect. You could take these stones and you could carve on these stones. And these stones were white and they could be used to give out. If an athlete won, you would give it to him. It would be like going to Chunky Cheese's, man. Here you go. Right here, you got a pass. You could take it and redeem it. It was also used by the elitists in Rome to write your name on it. And I would say, David, you're invited to dinner and I would give you this. Do you see where this is going? You see when he talks about a white stone, remember when you read that just a minute ago, you thought, what in the world? You see the backdrop of this? He's saying, I will give you a white stone. It will be engraved a new name that no one understands. It was also used, this white stone concept was also used, like, like for example, let's say uh, Sandy and I are, are friends, and, and her husband Dale is one of my buddies, and, and so we take this stone, I write my name on he writes his name on it, okay? And we break that stone in half, and now we've made a bond, me and him have. And that stone is good. For the rest of our lives, I can go to his house anytime I want to, and he will welcome me. He can come to mine, and we're buddies, and it's a secret that only me and him know these two names on the stone, a new name. It's so impactful that even when, when we pass away, the children get to inherit that benefit. With the backdrop of those four illustrations, let me read that verse again. I will give each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. The promises that are made. The stone represents a pact that Jesus gives to us by his grace. All because the name is written on the stone is the name. One day we'll stand before God. And if we've accepted him into our lives, I believe that he gives us an invitation. An invitation that means you are welcome to the feast. This is cryptic language that's written saying, hey, you're going to come and be in my presence if your name's on that stone. How do we get there? We get there by the blood of Jesus. We can't merit it. We can't be good enough. That's why we need grace. Grace is so far off the hook. I mean, <laughs> you know, it just blows my mind when you read about God's grace. He extends it to you. Do you realize there's nothing that you can do today that will make God love you any more than he already does? That's not how we work as humans, is it? No, but he loves you like that. Grace, God's grace. He extends it to each one of us. He wants to be in a relationship with us. The story of the, ch of the church at Pergamum, the story of the word is compromise. And they're being warned not to compromise. We live in an age when it seems like that, you know, there's a lot of that going on if we're not careful. We see things going on in our world and we think, Lord, can it get any worse? I was talking to somebody this week and they said, I don't even turn the TV news on anymore. I can't watch it anymore. Just, it's just nothing but negative. I can't handle it. How do we stay faithful 
church in this age? How did the church at Pergamum stay faithful? We give it to the Lord. We stay in his word. What we believe truly changes us. Let me say that again. What we believe truly changes us. And we can change with God's help. We can change with God's help. Because I believe that we can come to believe in a power greater than ourselves who will give us strength to overcome those things. But here's the problem. we got to let it go and give it to God. I don't know about you all, but here's the way I do that sometimes. I go over here and I say, okay, God, I'm going to give this to you. Here we go. All right, I'm going to go. All right, well, well, we just, let me have this part of it. Let me take this part of it back, and, and then I'll take Now, you keep the rest of it. Can I get a witness? He wants us to give it to him. And leave it, David. Like you said, leave it. Take your burdens to the cross and leave them there. Have you done that? I've been asked to this point blank. Have you done that? I catch, you know, I catch myself doing this. The other day I was dealing with something. I said I prayed about it and I gave it to the Lord and I walked away and it wasn't 25 seconds. And I'm like, really? I mean, I'm having these voices in my head going, really? <laughs> Did you just do that? And it's not bad enough, you know, you preach a sermon like this and then your wife sits on the front row and you go home and you don't even get out of the parking lot. She goes, what did you just preach in there a while ago? Gosh, I love that woman. We have to be cognitive and listen to the Holy Spirit. Fight stone that God gives us. It's an invitation. I want you to recognize that God loves you. Yeah, there could have been a hellfire and brimstone thing come into this town. There may have been some of that. I'm not saying that there's not a time maybe to do that in an occasion. But he was preaching to them that God loved them and the word of God can change your life. When we change the way we see a situation... It makes a difference, too. <laughs> we got to get the perspective, you guys. And sometimes we got to get a God perspective, not a Kent perspective or, or your name going into that slot. we got to get a God perspective and give it to him. And when we look at that, it'll change the way we see things. Compromise often happens slowly, but repentance doesn't have to be that way. Repentance can be instantly when we say, God, forgive me, and truly mean, God, forgive me. And I want to tell you something, it's gone. I wish there was some way I could get that across even better. Yeah, there's things that we have to deal with in life because of things that we've done, but here's the thing, God's grace will get us through that as well. I got the book. Isn't that good news? We overcome. We see God's grace. We see the story. This situation shows that even though they were in a culture that was surrounded by evil, <laughs> the Satan's throne was where they were living. I mean, come on. Even in the middle of that, God was with them and for them. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. When we accept Christ, we're on a journey. But we're not on it alone. The gospel truth for the rest of our lives is changing. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I'm not where I was last year, and I'm not where I'm going either. As children of God, we're walking, and we're walking this journey. You see, when you accept Christ into your life, it, you can't, it has to come out. We're not secret agents in the gospel message. We're to share the gospel. And it's one of God's greatest gifts is the invitation to repent 
and receive his grace. One of the greatest gifts is the gift of repentance that God gives us to accept us. Jesus loves you very much, so much so that he's calling you, calling us back on the right track. That's what he was doing with this church. This church had compromised so gradually, and they were being called back to the truths of the gospel. I've prayed for a long time about our church and the direction this year, and we have a logo, and this is where we're going this year. I don't want us to just go to church. I want us to go be the church. Can I get an amen? As we go through this today and as we leave here today, we represent this corner, but more importantly, we represent Jesus, the Christ. And as we go into a world that doesn't see things like we do, doesn't mean we have to be hard to get along with or judgmental. It means we should be loving and preaching this gospel of grace and being different. May God add his blessings to this world. Let's pray with me. Father, thank you for these churches and the principles that we see being utilized in these churches. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that moves and gives us the strength just when we need it. Father, I pray today that in this place there are those that are hurting. I pray that they feel that move of the Holy Spirit that gives them strength. I pray, God, that they would lift as eagles' wings, not in themselves, but in you. I pray, God, that they would give it to you and leave it there. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of repentance that we can come to you and then you accept us. Father, we're changed when we do that. We don't keep doing what we were doing. We go forward. And you give us grace. And when we stumble, you pick us up. Thank you for that. Our hearts are to serve you and to follow you. Bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a time of commitment. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing. Maybe you'd like to pray. I've said this before, and I, I say it every week, but I mean it. You can pray right where you're at. Maybe there's something in your life that you just need to give it to the Lord.